0: Well, let's dive in if you've got your bibles or your journals first peter chapter 3 verse 13 we'll come to it in just in just a second today is going to be like putting together a jigsaw puzzle anybody like to do puzzles out there have you had the experience where you get to the end of the box the end and all the pieces are out of the box but they're not in the puzzle and there's like a gap of like three pieces, and they're always like right in the middle of the puzzle. Well, that's what our scripture day is going to feel a little bit like, and I'm going to do my best to work through, but I believe there are some powerful things here. And so what I would like to do is I'm going to read part, and we're going to work through part. And we're going to read part and work through part. What I'd like to do, just to begin, is I would like to read all the way through and just have you once again look at your scriptures. Look at your journal, look at your device, and just look and think. And If you've got a pen or you've got a way to highlight, I want you to highlight anything that jumps out at you. And if nothing jumps out at you, I would challenge you that you're not actually paying attention today because it gets a little strange here in the middle. Okay? And we're going to work our way through it, but I want to set the stage for us because this is what Peter is going to call us to today. So... If you have it, follow along with me. Chapter 13. I'm just going to read through. In fact, Randy, I don't know if these are in the order. If they are, you can throw them up there. But if not, we're just going to be a straight reading through. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteous sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. That's going to be very important. baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not as removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to God for the conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who's gone into heaven as at the right hand of God with angels authorities and powers having been subjected to them now there's some interesting things going on in that there's some curious things going on there i think the key to understanding this is we've got to remember what's Peter's goal in writing this. And what are the very first people that received this letter, what were they experiencing that would prompt Peter? Because Peter's a pastor. Peter cares about these churches and these Christians. And what Peter's going to do is he's going to strengthen them. He wants to encourage, add courage. That's what the word means, add courage to them in these times. They are experiencing fear. They're experiencing pressure. They're experiencing anxiety because the world is stacked against them. Can anybody relate to that feeling? He starts off, Who who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer, because he knows they are suffering. If you should suffer, for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, and don't be troubled. Well, that falls under the category, Peter, of easier said than done. Man, I, mean, I could just get up here and go, hey, life's tough. Don't worry about it. Cameron, come lead us in the closing song. You'd be like, well, that's not really helpful. So what Peter's going to do in the remaining verses is he's going to be helpful. So he goes on. He says this. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And then he gives our theme verse, the one that I believe that all of Peter's is, the, the book, the letter 1 Peter is wrapped around, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and with respect. So he gives us this theme verse, and he gives them a very unique kind of command. He says, I want you to always be prepared to give a defense. Now, some of your translations may say an answer, may say an explanation. I want you to be able to explain what you have. Peter understands a very basic principle about how we are. I'll illustrate it this way. The other day, I was in Sam's, and if you've seen something in Sam's now, they've got this station where you can go over near the produce, and there's a person there, and they've got this big machine, and they've got all these oranges. And if you want, you can order this jug, and they will take the oranges, and they will put in the machine, and it will squeeze and put pressure on them, and then something will come out. Do you know what comes out of oranges when you squeeze oranges? Orange juice. juice. Do you know why orange juice comes out of oranges when you squeeze oranges? It's because that's what's in there. Now, I noticed none of you wrote that down. I'm giving you some deep research here that I've done this week. When something is squeezed and put under pressure... What's in there is going to come out. Peter is saying, you have a living hope. You are now experiencing the squeeze of culture. You're experiencing the squeeze of the government that is against you. You're experiencing the squeeze of your friends that do not understand. When you're squeezed, what comes out, Peter's saying people that that possess a living hope profess a living hope. What you possess is what you profess. And so he is about to give them not just, I want you to have this because that's what you should have. He's going to give them the reasons that you should have this. And so what Peter does is he doesn't just say, as I've often read this passage, well, I guess anytime somebody asks me, I just need to be ready, and so I need to go looking all across the Bible, and I need to have all these answers stacked up on here's why I believe what I believe, and here's how I can refute this argument, and here's how I can refute that argument, and here's all that I know about you know, how the Bible came to be, and textual analysis, and scriptural validity, and all those other things. I need to be ready for all that. That's not what Peter's saying. Actually, what I had always heard in my head was, Peter wants me to defend my faith. That's not what Peter says, is it? Look back at 315 again. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be, pre- be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the what's the next word? For the hope that you have. If the hope is in you, as Peter's Churches experience this pressure, this torment, this persecution, this suffering. He's saying the hope needs to come out. As we experience it, the hope needs to come out. And he's going to give us reasons not to defend our faith, but to explain the hope that we have. And I want to share with you three things that Peter teaches us on the reasons that we can have this hope. And so Peter, being a good minister, is going to equip us for that. Okay, so you ready? Verse 18. We're gonna. This is the part we'll walk through nice and slow. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Peter's about to tell us three places that Jesus has gone to. The first place is the cross Jesus goes to. Notice what he says. Christ suffered. He's saying, you're suffering? Remember, your suffering is in line with Christ's suffering. You feel like you're suffering and being persecuted unjustly? Christ was innocent, and he suffered greatly. He suffered once for sins, not for his sin, but for your sin, for my sin. Jesus went to the cross, and he took our place. The fancy word for that is he was our substitution. There was a judgment that I deserved. There was a judgment that you deserved. There was a judgment that all deserve that ends at a cross. But so that you and I did not go there, Jesus went there completely righteous, but for the unrighteous, for you and me, that he might bring us to God. And so Jesus is going and he's in our place. He is the sacrifice, he is the Lamb. This is why our claim as Christians is so unique. Our claim is not that I worked real hard and I got my act together and then I grew close to God because then I could draw near Him. Our claim is this, is that I was so messed up that God had to come on a rescue mission for me and take my place. When, when Christians are accused of being holier than thou, all that I can realize is that we're doing a horrible job of telling our claim. We're not holier than anybody else. We're just acknowledging we're so messed up, we needed Jesus to come in and do what Jesus did. And what Peter is saying is that's been done. And so the first reason that I want you to understand that we can have hope is because of the redemption of Jesus Your redemption through Jesus is a reason for the living hope that you have. Now, I've got to pause this one just for a moment because we can't rush too easily by this because so many still think it's up to you to get the job done. It has been my incredible blessing to work with so many and help them prepare their funerals. But more than once, I've gotten the question as I've helped somebody that's facing the end of life prepare the funeral, they'll say something to the effect of, I hope I've done enough. And it breaks my heart. Because I have to wrestle with, there's something about my preaching that must be communicating that because that's not the message. Peter is saying, if you have hope in what you've done, that's no living hope. But if your hope is in what Christ has done, that's a powerful and living hope because Christ can accomplish that mission. Scripture tells us that he took away all the sin... And the legal code that was against us, he nailed it to the cross, and it's been canceled. It's been wiped out. It's been deleted. You can't reboot. You can't get it back. It's not somewhere in the cloud. Too many of us are living like God's got our criminal records still on a database up in heaven. And you're thinking, he's just going to pull it out and use it against me someday. That's not what Peter's saying. Jesus went to a cross, and he died there. And when he died there, your sins died there. One stayed dead, the other didn't. And Jesus walks out alive out of that tomb. Your redemption through Jesus is a reason for your living hope. There's an answer that you can give. Verse 19. He's made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Absolutely nothing interesting there. Let's move on. Peter gives this very, to us, it's a very unique and it's a weird thing. And I, I'm going to tell you that lots of ink has been spilled over this little passage. Okay? So, let me tell you what I think Peter is trying to do here. Let me also say very clearly that I'm going to give it what I believe Peter, is, as a pastor, is attempting to, do to encourage his believers and his readers but this, there are various interpretations of this. I'm not claiming to have necessarily the right one. If, when, we get to heaven, and you run up and you ask God about what this passage meant, and it's different than what I'm about to say, please don't point at me. Say, but Scott said. Three interpretations usually go something like this. The question is, What is Christ doing in this passage? And is he going to hell? Is he taking a descent into hell and preaching to the spirits of humans, the souls of humans that are trapped there? Second interpretation is, is he pre-existent? Meaning, is there something about this that he's symbolically preaching through Noah? That he's showing up in that passage with Noah? Or is he actually ascending into heaven and making a proclamation on spirits and fallen angels that were in rebellion. I believe it's the third, and here's why. Because, when, when first of all, when you see this word spirits in here, and it has no qualifier on it, it usually means a supernatural being of some kind. And and that and this one has no qualifier on it, and it references a supernatural being, and it says it says he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. Now he uses this reference to Noah, but if it's only to the spirits that disobeyed at the time of Noah, why would that be? What what, what was special and unique about the spirits of the, the souls of the people of just of Noah? That that seems too limiting. And it actually takes place, I know we think this goes on, we, we think Peter's referring to the time between the cross and the resurrection. I think what Peter's actually doing is he's referring to the time after the resurrection. Because notice back in verse 18, right before it, what he is saying is, is at the very back half of it, it says, "...being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit." in which he went and proclaimed. Okay, he was made alive in the spirit and he then went and proclaimed. I don't think that Peter is referring to a, a time a space of time between crucifixion and resurrection. I think he's referring to right after walking out of the tomb. Because he just is alive. And then he gives us reference to Noah. Remember Peter's writing to a group of people that are being challenged and they feel isolated from their surroundings and they feel alone in the world because of their beliefs. That's how Noah felt. And so Peter's reaching back into this Noah story. He's saying, just like Noah felt, you felt. And when he does that, he creates what Tim Mackey from the Bible Project calls a hyperlink. And these, that's a really cool term because if you're familiar on your computer... You can be reading one article, and there's a link to something related, and then six hours later, you know, you've not got anything done, but you've gone down all these hyperlinks because they're all connected. Well, that's what Peter does with Scripture. Paul does this all the time. Anytime you see something in the New Testament that references something in the Old Testament, it's not just simply that one line or that phrase. It's that whole story, that whole concept, that whole context. And so Peter hyperlinks back to the Noah story. And Noah and his family, it was them against the world. But that story begins in Genesis chapter 6 very uniquely. And it describes that's just a few, right before you get to the Noah story, just a few sentences, it describes this weird story about the Nephilim. And it says that these angels saw the beauty of human women, and so they took on human form, and they came down, and they entered into sexual relationship with the human women. And they produced this race. In Genesis, it was used to describe how wicked the world had become and how just up for grabs and debaucherous it had become. And so God says, I'm going to start again, and he institutes the flood. And those fallen angels, those rebellious angels, are locked into a prison. And there's a reason that I believe this, and if you want, it's in 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter... The second letter we have from Peter in chapter 2, this unpacks this idea just a little bit more, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to change of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon them. Upon the, the world of the ungodly. okay. So Peter, the same author, is carrying the same thought forward. And so here's what I believe he's saying. He's saying, Jesus went to the cross and your redemption was sealed. You have living hope. And then he walked out of a tomb victorious. And the first thing that he does is he shows up in front of these imprisoned, fallen angels, these wicked, wicked spirits, and he says, the victory is mine. It is complete. You may have thought that your rebellion was going to pay off someday. It's over. And he's making a proclamation. That's what the word is, the proclaim. The proclamation by Jesus Because there's other words that he uses for preach, but this word that he uses right here is make an announcement. And so he goes and he makes this proclamation or declaration, if you want, that the victory has been sealed. And why would that be important to these people that Peter is writing this letter to? Because they're receiving from the powers that be, from the government, From the institutions of their world, they're receiving all of this persecution. And what Peter is reminding them of, Jesus has declared his victory over fallen angels, rebellious spirits, the worst that Satan can throw at you. He's victorious over that. You're in the minor leagues. The government doesn't have anything on them. That's that's why he's reminding them, of, of how this all turns out. And so, if you want, pick it up in verse, um, verse 21. It says, This flood, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Peter's saying they all bow down to Jesus now. Your worst enemy will bow down to Jesus. There is no authority above him. You can have living hope. Jesus goes to a cross and our redemption's there. He goes to these prisons and proclaims victory there. And then what Peter ends with is he ends with Jesus going to a throne and his coronation is there. He's, notice what he's saying. He's saying, who has gone into heaven, he's now at the right hand of God. All angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. We have a mistaken view of hell. Because we think, oftentimes, when you see a cartoon or something, hell is ruled by satan and he's sitting on a throne there the bible never describes a throne in hell because satan does not sit on a throne there's one throne it's in heaven jesus is sitting squarely on it and it's not up for grabs he rules everywhere and these people are receiving this letter, and they're being reminded that they have a living hope in a God that does not worry about elections. He's not scared about what Congress is going to do next. He, he's not sweating the economy. I, I know we do, but he's not. That's what Peter's reminded him of. He says, that's a living hope. And when somebody comes and asks you, why do you have this living hope? It's because that Jesus has bought my redemption. And he's made a proclamation of victory. And he now sits as king on a throne. And this is just extra. I know we like the phrase, I made Jesus lord of my life or king of my life. Jesus didn't need your permission for that. Now we can acknowledge that he's king, but that is only acknowledging what he already is, was, and will be forever. That's our decoration. Now, here, and here's the beautiful, beautiful part of that. That's why he talks about baptism in here. Notice what he says, verse twenty-one. Baptism, which corresponds to this. Corresponds to what? Corresponds to this flood that washed the wickedness off of the earth. Started again. Not as removal of dirt from your body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we think that the power is actually in the water, you're sorely mistaken. The power is not in the water. The water. There's not magic water out there. He's saying this isn't just like getting wet. Okay, if it, if it was, we would douse you with water when you walked in the door. He's saying it's a work on the inside. So when we participate in baptism, and the word there is immersion, when, when you go under the water, your baptism is a participation in the death, burial, and the resurrection. It's a declaration that he is king. And it's a submission coming under him saying, You are now Lord of all and my life that you had bought already. I freely submit to your rule. And there's living hope. Not something that I've done on my own. Not because I've got a good rap sheet or a bad rap sheet behind me. Not because I've got a certain amount of sins on one side and a certain amount of good deeds on the other side of the scale and I think I can get this thing to balance out. Because of what Jesus has done. And the way that we participate in that is through baptism. This is one of the reasons that one of our vision five is that we're praying for a harvest of baptisms. And we are seeing more and more an increasing number of people say, Jesus is Lord. Through baptism. And every time we celebrate that, because that's once again living hope playing itself out, that's the story of redemption playing itself out, that is seeing a life move from the prison to victory overall. And that should get us excited. What baptism is, it is a complete and utter change. This is why we call it a new creation, anybody that's being baptized. There's a a new person being born. In fact, we should actually host our baptisms and they come out of the water, we should say, introduce yourself. Because it's a new creation now, with a complete new identity. And none... None of that which tainted the old self, completely clothed with Christ. I've, I've shared the story before, but as I was a youth minister, another church, a student came in, and I didn't know this student because he'd only attended sporadically but he showed up in the office that day in the middle of the week because grandmother brought him down and grandma says he needs to be baptized and the other youth minister that actually had a relationship with him that knew him and at least recognized him went and talked and visited with him and then those two and the grandmother and myself we went into the worship center where the baptistry was and The other youth minister and the student went back, and I'm standing there with the grandmother, and I'm trying to make small talk and get to know her. They come out. We have the baptism. The two of us, we applauded together. We were excited. And I just look at her, and I say, wow, what an incredible day and what a big change. To which she says, yes, it's an incredible day, but he doesn't have to change that much. My thought since that was, what have we done to baptism where we don't see baptism as that big of a change? See, on one level, baptism is an execution of an old self. And we don't get to living hope because we don't have to change that much. We get to living hope because... The old self is dead, and now there's a new self alive through Christ, made alive by His Spirit. And it should be radically new. Because I wonder if we don't have that much hope, if we can't actually answer Peter's question in verse, 13, in verse 15, if we haven't fully bought into this idea that God has done something radically grace-filled in my life that I did not earn. And the more we come to understand that living hope and that grace, the more we're going to fall in love with Him over and over and over again. So I would boldly ask you today, have you been baptized? Have you participated in that redemption, that proclamation, and that coronation of what Jesus is, has done, and who He's become? And I would boldly ask you to wrestle with that. Because this isn't something that we hold out as some kind of, well, here's another little step you go through. This is a radical change that is available to you. And anybody that's gone through it, we should be able to speak about this with a living hope and just in awe that I cannot believe what God's done. On my behalf. And that a victory has been won. A victory has been won. Something was up for grabs. My life was up for grabs. And it was at risk. But a victory has now been won. That cannot be taken away. That cannot be shaken. That can, cannot be robbed. You know the scripture that says where no thief can break in and steal? It's not at risk in any way whatsoever. That's our living hope. No administration, no economy, no persecution, nothing will challenge that. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to pray over you. And I'd like to pray for you that this living hope, if, if you are already a part of that, that we would find ways to express it again and again and again and again. And if you're not yet a part of that, I want to pray that for you as well that God would begin to work in your heart and would see just how within your reach this is. And I know that's true because you're not outside of God's reach. So if you would, stand with me please. I'm going to pray. And then Cameron's going to come up and he's going to listen an old favorite but I think that's so appropriate now we're going to sing victory in Jesus. And so I want to let the song be the amen to the prayer. That makes sense. So sing it like you believe it and you mean it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is incredible to think that Jesus went to the cross and there he accomplished the mission. And that our sin was dealt with and it was nailed there and it was canceled against us. Father, I pray for anyone that still lives thinking that you've got a record somewhere. That you're going to pull out and use this leverage against them somehow, Father. That you would fill them with a living hope that calls that out as a lie. And Father, help us be people that live the victory of Jesus every single day. That even as we face that which oppresses us in this world and this day, that we would understand that Jesus already is victorious over it. Because Jesus is our King. And Father, would you help us to live lives in worship and subject to Him as a king, that all of our lives will become lining up with the day that we're going to see our king face to face. And so, Jesus, I thank you for being the gracious king, the sacrificial king, and the resurrected king. It's in your name we pray. It's in your name we have victory. It's in your name we have living hope. Amen. Cameron.